0: So, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about culture, we've talked about people, we've talked about strategy, we've talked about positioning, we've talked about motivations, we've talked about the EVP. And now we're going to start gluing the pieces together, right? We're going to really distill what it means to build that kind of EVP. And that's what we're going to dive into pretty deeply when we get back. Hey everybody, James Ellis here. Welcome back to the Talent Cast. It's season two where we podcastify the audiobook version of a book I wrote and released two years ago, except I'm updating it as I'm doing it. It's kind of a magic trick, I, I, I assure you. Anyway, it's all brought to you by recruitmentmarketing.com, the community for recruitment marketing professionals. Go check them out. They have a huge community, got a lot of content over there, and they do an Ask Me Anything with some guy called me. Uh, they're going to do a couple of them, to be perfectly honest, but there's another one coming up May, I want to say 24th. I don't remember exactly. You'd think I know this information, but it, you know, I don't exactly know when this episode drops. Anyway, go sign up to recruitmentmarketing.com. Go figure out where they ask me anything, because so I'm doing three more as of this recording, so go check them out. Ask me questions. Push back. What doesn't make sense? What do you need redescribed or redefined or your particular situation? Whatever. Ask me anything. If this is the kind of content you like to hear, I have a newsletter. It's free. It lands in your inbox every Monday morning. It's called Employer Brand Headlines. Just go to employerbrand.news or employerbrandheadlines.substack.com and go sign up. Like I said, it's free. It's really just there to help keep you sharp. All right, let's get into it. So, if you understand what motivates people, you can look within your company and see which of those motivations you're rewarding. Are you rewarding the people who innovate and drive change, or treat them like rabble rousers and try to silence them? Are you promoting the people who cultivate your togetherness culture, or do you focus on the ones that do the best individual work? When you say you're trying to save the world, are you recognizing the people whose work towards that goal is really changing, moving the needle? Or do you reward the people focused on developing their own careers? Remember, a culture is built and fostered on these decisions. What you reward is who you are. These cultures align or are counter to people's motivations. So if you're rewarding the people who best align this culture, you're reinforcing the culture and telling like-minded people, this is what we're about and this would be a great place for them. If you reward individuals who excel at, say, individual achievement, you're in reinforcing a culture where teamwork isn't as valued. But rock stars and divas, absolutely. And this is what people talk about. This is what people notice. This is what they comment upon and will attract more divas and rock stars, thus reinforcing the culture set by what you choose to reward, right? It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Your goal is to take all these elements that make up your company and distill them until you craft a a simple positioning statement or simple position concept. All the motivations you could support, which of them are most meaningful, which are most effective, and in a way that separates you from your competitive set. It's not an easy job. Just as Volvo could have said it was a reliable car or an attractive car or a car that made you look more appealing to others, it focused on a message that other people ignored. It carved out that space in a very crowded car market, calling itself a safe car. And then being able, because they proved that they were safe, they were able to charge people a premium for it. In a way, that's your goal. The more you can reinforce this idea that this is what you're all about, and there's enough proof points out there that there's no kind of equivocating, there's no kind of missing it that this is really what we're all about. The more people who want that sort of thing will say, "I want to be there." But there's a chasm between the idea of your positioning, i.e., the things you the motivations that you feed, and the message you tell the world. You have an existing corporate and consumer branding, and chances are you are not responsible for it. You have an existing perception in the market about what your company is like to work for. You have channels and forces driving your employer brand that you have no control over. It should be becoming clearer and clearer how this job is all about influencing ideas, not stating them, not mandating them. To be an effective influencer, however, you have to work within the existing structure. You can't draw a blank sheet of paper and say, this is the company I think I want to manage, No, the company exists, and the culture exists, and the perceptions exist, and you can't just pretend as if they don't exist. You have to be aware of all the current elements developing your brand architecture if you're going to be in a position to shape what's happening. Now, fleshing out the brand architecture is a bit of a process, right? There's a lot of conversations. And that's probably because every element and function is very abstract, so when I talk about a mission or a vision or pillars, even when I define them, there's still a lot of wiggle room between them. When you talk about a specific brand and you nail those things down, it creates concreteness. It makes it more specific. It makes it more real. But it does take a long time for everyone to end up with the same kind of understandings. Just because you wrote it down doesn't mean everybody gets it. I, 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 I'm, I'm always flabbergasted. I, keep bring, you know, I bring it up in a lot of... <laughs> a lot of times where I say, just because you say you're innovative, what does that mean? An individual word is effectively like a symbol. The problem is what I read into that symbol is not always what other people read into that symbol. So you have to describe the symbol more appropriately. It's not just about the brand. It's about all the stuff inside the brand that you have to unpack and, and build, right? So this isn't about you. This is literally the nature of a brand. Even when I have conversations with other brand professionals, I still find myself making and demanding definitions just to make sure we're all on the same page. Just to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. It can very often feel like a game of improv without any stated rules or boundaries. And expect, you know, to land on some sort of solution is impossible. Without establishing shared definitions, you're better off playing imaginary marbles. The only way to play is to remember that no matter how serious you get about the size or location of the marbles, everything's still imaginary because everything's, make, everyone's making it up as they go along. Trust me, that is true. So when I discuss a particular concept of architecture, don't treat it like a set of instructions. See it more of like a, an example of how to start and what direction to head. Think of it more as a map and a compass, not the trail itself. The trail is there for you to explore. The map is just to give you a sense of, okay, after you deal with this section, you're gonna go on to this other section. I'm not gonna tell you it's exactly 47 feet or 47 miles. I'm just gonna say it's this idea and then it becomes this idea. So let's distill employer brand down when the company's complex. So I wanna be really clear. I know it looks like I'm really oversimplifying something that's super, super complex, and I am. That's kind of what the job is. I mean, how is it possible that a brand or a position can be boiled down to either a basic idea, especially when you're talking about a big company or a diverse company? It can't really be that simplistic, can it? Well, no, it really can't. But like so many things in life, what looks simple at first glance really has an underlying complexity. You just have to kind of dig at it and see it it's almost by design. It's really there to kind of say to an outsider, hey, this is what we're about. Very simple, very direct. But for the brand professional, for the marketers, for recruiters who want to dig into it and find new messaging inside it, there's a depth of ideas, a depth of thought inside what seems like a very simple idea. So first, we have those eight motivations, but no two people's motivations are truly identical. No one has A motivation. Everybody has a collection of motivations at different weightings, right? If I say I care about doing the best work possible, I'm saying that with the assumption that I also like to get paid, and I would also like to not get screamed at, and I would also like to learn some things as I do it. Those are four different motivations. I have one I care most about, but that doesn't mean the others don't exist. You and I might be driven by status as a concept, but where that motivation comes from and how that motivation expresses itself can also be different. So when we consider working in a company, I might be attracted to a company looking to put me on a stage, but your drive for status might look around like, uh, how do you say you're able to work at a preeminent company? Even if we're both looking for the ability to say we work at at a different place, my experience is say that company A is more beloved and respected than company B, or your experience might say the opposite. Just because we're both looking for status doesn't mean we both find status in the same company. For example, which brand drives more feelings of status? A BMW or an Aston Martin? Apple or Nike? Berkshire Hathaway or Goldman Sachs? There's, there's no right answer, so don't try to look for one. The goal is to develop a brand that triggers those feelings of status, or whatever your core motivator is, that sparks the emotions in someone else and build from there. Second, these motivations are so deeply embedded and intrinsic to who we are, they can be expressed by a million people in a million different ways. If your company is mission-driven, Look at your HR and sales teams. Those two teams have completely different cultures, right? HR and legal are very risk-averse, and sales is often very risk-loving. HR is very collaborative, and sales can be very competitive. Not always, but, you know, paint with a broad brush here. give, give Give me a break here, right? But they can all be focused on a common mission, whether it's changing the way people think of travel, or saving the seals, or whatever. It doesn't matter. If your company is all about empowerment, for example, the same polar opposite teams can find ways to empower themselves. With an HR or legal, it might look like a willingness to, to be more deeply partnered with the business to you know, unpack more complicated problems and be a part of the decision-making process instead of you know, being on the outside looking in. But for sales, it might be about sharing tactics and ideas across the sales floor, working hand-in-hand with marketing, sharing what's been working and giving every single person a chance to push the team further, A-B testing, sharing and cross-pollinating ideas. There's lots of ways to say we're empowering ourselves. If you have teams in different locations with different cultures, they still are expected to operate under the same umbrella of mission and values, but you still localize them. Right. The New York office might be a 24-7 sales floor, or a Minneapolis office might be more chill, and I don't mean by temperature-wise. They can all still work under the motivations of support and performance, but it gets localized both by team and function, but also by geography. And sometimes geography is function, as very often, with a distributed company, right? The sales team is in St. Louis, and the legal team is in, I don't know, Oklahoma City, right? They're just It's easier to do that sometimes. So the ideas themselves can be super simple. Empowerment, status, it's a word. How complicated can a single word be? But how people live that idea can be as complex as fractals. Don't be afraid to dig below that simple concept. Your goal is to find a unique way of expressing that concept to other people, to strangers. Getting specific and concrete with your concept allows that to happen. And, of course, don't forget to use the pillars. That does also allow you to help shape the rest of that simple, basic idea. Remember, the brand isn't meant to be applied equally in every case and every time. It isn't a label you stick on things to say, this is mine. The brand is far more complex. Once you've established the pillars, you should see them as a set of tools to use when you need them. That is, you can apply pillars in different ways, in different solutions. You know, for example, you can use the idea of respecting your company's history more at the HQ office than say branch offices where you're going to lean against, you know, lean more on other pillars. At the sales team, the focus is going to be on empowerment. And in HR, the focus is more on respect, perhaps, right? You can localize it to those situations, depending on your context. Now, in a company of just 10 people, you can't even assume that all 10 people see the same, see the company the same way. Now, do the math on what it looks like when there's 100 people or 1,000 people and in many companies, 10,000 more employees. That's impossible. You're trying to create instead a framework that helps people outside the company understand what it's like inside. communicating the employer brand, setting frames, and feeding perceptions. Now, I haven't counted, <laughs> but by now, I've used the phrase setting frames a lot. A lot. I, I, probably more times than I care to admit, right? And it's very possible that it's not clear what I'm talking about. And I'm sorry about that, but we're going to fix that right here. Frame setting is a concept that says how you look at something is as important as what you're looking at. So if you want to understand something, you can look at the thing, but you also need to understand the context in which that thing exists because the context plays as much of a role in understanding and judgment as that thing itself. So in other words, the lens through which I look at something has as much of an impact as the thing I'm looking at. So if you're trying to change people's perception, you can change facts, or maybe and you can change how they perceive those facts all those strategies are equally effective. So for example, and, and this is a pretty famous example, so I am pretty much cheating here. Some of you are old enough to remember when rental cars advertised on TV and magazines a whole lot more than they do now, right? <laughs> the concept of rental cars, a lot less, lot less prevalent now. Now, at the time, there was a brand called Avis, you probably have heard of it, and it was in second place in terms of market share. Hertz was the number one brand. Now for business travelers, rental cars are kind of an all or nothing gr- game, right? why would you have a membership at any other company than the one that's the largest one, right? They're going to have more cars, more choices. They're going to be at more airports and more locations. They're going to support more of my needs at any given time. So rather than keep memberships at lots of different companies, a renter kind of ends up picking one and sticking with it, and usually it picks the one given the most options. So in this situation, we have a fact. Avis is not the biggest brand, and it is not the biggest network. Can't change it. Can't dispute it. Straight up fact. Now, most people would see the fact and say, well, it's in second place, why bother? And they'd call it a day. But what if you could change the frame? And that's what they did. What if you could convince renters that being in second place is somehow to their advantage, despite the fact that you don't have as many cars, as despite the fact that you don't have as many locations, and despite the fact that you don't offer as many options. If you change the lens through which people saw your facts, it changes the facts without actually changing the facts, right? And that's exactly what Avis did. They ran a really long campaign under the banner of we're Avis, we try harder. Now think about that. At no point did Avis say, no, 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 we're not the second place. We are the biggest. They couldn't have said that. It's a lie. Facts were facts. Everybody knew the facts, but by changing the frame to suggest that it wasn't the biggest, it was incentivized to work harder for the customer. And thus, one day, it became the biggest, the frame having changed so that being smaller was actually an advantage rather than a weakness. Again, the facts did not change, but the frame changed, revealing that brand an entirely new light. So what are the facts about your brand? Are you big or are you small? Are you fast or are you steady? Are you risk averse or do you like breaking stuff? What's your stock price look like? What do they say about you in the news? What do employees say about you? What do you offer that other people don't or not in the same way that you do? What do you reward and what do you punish? The frame you set changes what those facts mean. If you're a company that's risk averse, let's call that a fact, You can set the frame to say your customers and clients come first, so you never make a move without making sure it's the right move. Fact didn't change, but the frame suddenly makes that fact seem much more interesting. You can frame it within the idea that a highly regulated industry has to be risk averse in order to meet regulatory obligations. In fact, within the frame, you can be the least risk averse in the industry, but look as solid and steady as a mountain to others. What looks like boring from a tech space might look fast and loose inside the banking sector. The fact and the frame are different, and you can manipulate them. If you're small—that's a fact, right—what does being small let you do? Does it let you develop more customer-centric solutions, give more time to your customers, give employees the chance to grow and stretch themselves because they'll end up wearing lots of different hats? Does it mean the employees get a bigger share of equity? Will people feel like they have more agency and ownership within the role? Or will it feel fly-by-night in a company that might just be barely hanging on or about to fall apart? Or a company so small it can't actually service many customers? The frame determines if the fact is positive or negative. And, in fact, the frame determines for whom a given fact is positive or negative. The goal is to figure out what facts a candidate will naturally learn about you and accept them as facts and figure out how to build the frame around them. Are you known for being big or small, fast or slow? What are are you known for? Are you a market leader or are you upstart? Are you growing faster? Are you reorganizing? Are you opening offices or expanding territory? All these things are facts that you can build frames around. If what a prospect absorbs about us would be turned into an equation, it kind of might look like this. The fact plus the frame equals the observable information that gets added to the bird's nest. This process is a lot easier if you start with a really obvious fact. a really obvious fact might be likely found in the candidate instead of being delivered by the recruiter, right? You don't tell people facts. People find out facts on their own. And a fact that a candidate finds on their own actually has more credibility than something you deliver because it doesn't come with baggage uh, or kind of any sense of bias, right? If you tell me you're smart, I may or may not believe it, but I'll likely put it in the he's trying to or she's trying to make, make themselves sound good, right? But if a friend tells me how smart you are or I discover something smart you wrote once, I'm more likely to create a fact in my mind that you are smart. Think of GE as a transition from manufacturing powerhouse to software company. They rolled out a whole series of commercials to convince you that their core business was much more tech-focused than light bulb and appliance-based. Now, if you had investigated the company before you saw all those commercials, you know, the ones I'm talking about, they were pretty famous about four or five years ago, you might have seen that they were hiring software engineers and were no longer boasting of their manufacturing expertise. You will have come to your own conclusion that GE was a technical company. You may have accepted it as a fact without having to be convinced by those expensive commercials. And it can become tricky as leadership tends to lead to the aspirational here, right? They focus on stuff that isn't 100% true in the now and maybe what they hope it will be one day, right? For example, your leadership may talk about how they are at the forefront of customer service, that they put the customer first in everything they do. Leadership may talk about this so much that they assume it's a fact. It's not. It's a claim. And it's a claim that anybody will be able to support or refute with a simple Google or, heck, a Yelp search. So once you understand that the facts being discovered about you, and you've decided what the frame you want that sets and aligns those facts to your positions, you're able to begin communicating that frame to the world. That is a huge part of our job. We, we do it naturally, but we don't always realize that's what we're doing. So I want to really spell out this concept of reframing ideas as a means by which we communicate. So to wrap up the last couple of weeks' worth of episodes here, by now you understand that we have impossible jobs. If we get hired, we show up, we ask questions, and you know, we don't always know the answers, We listen, we research, we collect facts, we interview and converse and and, and get into the process. We get thrown in a lot of inputs. We get thrown a lot of opinions and histories. And many of them are mutually exclusive or contradictory. And in the end, the company looks to you to weave a narrative about a glorious future for the organization. But in reality, there's always new stories to hear, new inputs, new contents, new contexts, and the river is never the same river twice. The story you tell has no ending. How can anyone be expected to tell a story of a company where a sales feels milked like a cow and product team never feels like they have enough information to create insight? How do you tell the story of a company where white collar jobs are in one country and manufacturing is in another? How do you make a company, perpetually losing ground, feel like someplace that someone else can win? The great superpower great employer branders have is perspective. You can see both sides of the coin at the same time time, the positive and the negative, the good and the bad. You can see what staff want and what they like, and you can see what leadership wants and what leadership likes, and connect the dots. You can build a shared future for people who want to invest in four years and people who are paid hourly. At the same time, you're a therapist. You learn not to project your own desires on the stories you hear, and you know that you aren't building a brand for you, but for everybody else. It isn't easy, but it can be done. And next week, we're going to dive into how you make it happen, the execution section. So I really hope you turn in next week. I'll see you then. Bye.